1: today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, the ability to grow a beard is what separates boys from men, and except for a few rare instances of bearded ladies, men from women. Because it's a uniquely masculine feature, facial hair has played an important role in forming our ideas about manhood. Today on the show, I talk to a cultural historian who specializes in the history of facial hair to discuss the cultural, political, and religious implications of the beard. His name is Christopher Oldstone Moore, and in his book of Beards and Men, he takes readers on a tour through the history of facial hair, starting with cavemen and going all the way to the hipster beard of the 21st century. We begin our conversation talking about why male humans grow beards in the first place And then take a look at the spiritual and political significance of beards and shaving, beginning with the ancient Sumerians and going all the way through medieval Europeans. We then discuss why the Greeks were big on beards until Alexander the Great and why the ancient Romans were barefaced until the days of the early Empire. We also discuss Jesus's beard and why many early Christians actually depicted him as being clean-shaven. We end our conversation talking about the great beard of the 19th century, why clean-shavenness took precedence in the 20th century, and no, it's not because of the military's of gas masks and the cultural meanings of facial hair today whether you're bearded or barefaced this podcast is going to leave you with lots of insights about the hair that grows on your masculine mug after the show is over check out the show notes at aom.is slash beards Christopher Oldstone Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you recently published a book of Beards and Men, The Revealing History of Facial Hair. You're a professor of Western civilization, and it says in your CV that you have a focus on facial hair and its intersection with the changing ideas of masculinity. I'm curious, how does a professor of Western civilization end up in a specializing in the, the history of facial hair?
0: Well, the short answer to that question is that I'm looking for fun things to put into my lecture, social history. Actually, the, it started out with the question of why did men shave? And well, that's the original question. And I was thinking about the Romans in the classical period of Julius Caesar and so forth and all their busts of well-shaven men, and I thought, when did that start? How did that get going, and is that a Roman thing? And so I started looking around, trying to find some information, and it was a pretty surprised to find that, that we, that is to say, academia, knew almost nothing about the history of shaving facial hair, and it was just com- completely overlooked, and so I got more and more interested in it, and then I fell completely into the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Here we are today. Do you yourself have a beard, or do you shave?
0: You know, I go back and forth. Right now, I do have a beard. I often have a beard during the summertime when I'm, you know, camping and so forth and so on. And sometimes I shave it off. I guess I'm, I'm indecisive. And in, in my book, I have a picture of both me, <laughs> bearded and not bearded, but it also reflects history. That's the way histories work, too.
1: So let's talk about the question, why do humans have beards in the first place? Because you point out other primates don't have copious amounts of facial hair like we do. Do biologists have an idea why humans evolved to have facial hair?
0: Well, that's a great conundrum and it's been debated for decades. And there, there are a lot of good reasons, but we can't be dead sure because it's impossible to recreate the conditions of about 50,000 years ago or so when these things evolved. I think that the predominant theory is still Darwin's idea that Beards are an ornament, that is to say they're meant to demonstrate a man's maturity, health, strength, those kinds of qualities that would make him a good sexual partner, and therefore is an ornament, a signal to to sexual partners that he he's the kind of guy that you want. And there's a lot of interesting evidence of that. Both in psychological research, but also in other microbiological research, in search of, uh, for example, in the study of animals and the comparison, say, with feathers. You know, there's an obvious ornament case. And bird females look at males and look at their plumage, and the bigger, the better the plumage, the more interested they are. Biologists are thinking, well, maybe that's what we're doing with the beards, too. Here's the interesting part. They debate about whether, why is this happening? Why do birds grow these ridiculous feathers like the peacock, for example? They've discovered that really it's what they call an honest advertising. That is to say that it really does take a healthy peacock (laughs) to grow impressive feathers. And so when you see impressive feathers, when a female bird sees impressive feathers, it's not just a trick. It's, It's the real thing. That bird is a healthy bird, so it's a good sexual partner. So maybe if you have a big, healthy beard, that's a good sign.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the other theory I've heard out there is that it's selection for, I guess, the beard somehow provided protection to hits to the face. I've heard that theory also as well. but
0: Well, biologists don't pay much attention to that. I, I, there isn't really much evidence of that. I mean, when you think about it, if beards were meant to be, say, protecting you know, important parts of your neck or your face or or anything like that, it wouldn't grow the way it does. Uh, I think people have noticed, you know, for example, a lot of people say, oh, it protects your neck. Well, it doesn't actually grow on your neck, you know. (laughs) It grows on your face, you know, it grows on your chin. And does your chin need protection? Yes, where it's thickest is is on the chin. Does your chin need protection? Not particularly. What does impress biologists, evolutionary biologists, is the fact that, you know, that chin around the mouth is, you know, a chin is actually, our human chins are actually enlarged, artificially enlarged for visual effect. To look impressive, to look strong, our mouth mouth area is something that we use to threaten people with, our teeth. Uh, and to have an impressive chin, an impressive face, impressive mouth is intimidating. It looks strong. And that's the other part of the theory is that not only is it an ornament, but it could be a weapon. That is to say it shows how threatening and strong we are. And so it's a warning to other men as well as an attraction to women. So kind of kiss her both roles.
1: So, okay, if uh, beards under this theory is there sort of as an ornament of attraction for women and possibly a deterrence to other men, yeah. why did humans start shaving? And when did <laughs> they start shaving?
0: Yeah, Exactly. Good question. I mean, that's kind of where I started this whole thing. And you think of ancient people as being big-bearded people, ancient Greeks, the ancient Mesopotamians and so forth, the Syrians. Actually, shaving really starts right at the beginning of, of civilization, as far back as we can, we can look, and probably before. One of the reasons to do that, to shave it, is to indicate... A different kind of, a special kind of masculinity, not an ordinary natural kind that we're born as, but something that we make ourselves into. And and the most special form of masculinity that uh, the ancient world had was the priesthood. Which you know, uh, there's a joke about prostitution, prostitutes are the original professionals, but. The truth is that the priests were the original professionals. They, they were the, the first people to be set aside for special task, very important special task. That special task was to interact with the gods and to win their favor on behalf of all the rest of us. And as a very important took special preparation and training and skills. And so as part of that the separation and preparation. They developed this idea of of shaving. Now, I think it's pretty clear that one has to bear in mind that these early priests, and we're going back 5,000 years ago, these early priests in Mesopotamia and Egypt, they shaved their entire bodies, not just their faces. All the hair was removed, and in many cases they appeared nude in front of the gods. So they removed their clothing, they removed their hair, and then I think the idea is to is to purify themselves, in some ways erase their dirty humanity, you know, and prepare themselves to be as clean and as pure as possible as they approach the gods. And, you know, throughout, you read this in the Bible, you know, all the temples had purification pools where you had to go through a ritual cleansing before you approach, you know, the holy sanctuary. The shaving of hair and ultimately shaving the beards off, the face is originated there, you know, with that idea of, of purification.
1: So while that was going on, though, in ancient Mesopotamia and in Egypt, the beard still played an important role in a man's identity. See, if you look at those old carvings from Mesopotamia, you see these guys with their just like ginormous beards. The ancient Egyptians would put on, you know, fake beards, sort of like that little strip, right? So what's going on there? You had the priesthood who saw facial hair as making them somehow unpure, but then also at the same time you had these kings who said, no, the facial hair makes me awesome and maybe godlike too.
0: Well, and so you kind of have a separation of roles, you know, different types of masculinity. So you have the priestly masculinity, and that's a certain kind of power. And then you have the warrior masculinity, and that's a different kind of power. And not surprisingly, they have a different look, you know. And it goes back to what I... Suggested about this idea of the beard as a weapon, as a threat. I mean, you look impressive. You look strong. So yeah, a lot of the ancient uh, kings loved loved the, the the big beard as a sign of their warrior prowess. And of course, and, and even they would insist that the beard, the king's beard, got to be had to be the longest. You know, <laughs> at least in art, <laughs> because that suggests that he is the most warlike, the most manly. And so there's a different role there, and so what, what I have fun with in the book is that there's a moment in, in that history of Mesopotamia that about about a hundred years span maybe 150 years there was a dynasty that was sort of trying to play it both ways <laughs> where they, the king would in some cases appear shaved like a priest uh, uh, doing his priestly duties because kings were, had priestly roles as well and and at other times in other places, he would appear with his, as you say, ginormous beard. And it's a little hard to tell whether he actually put on a fake beard or whatever. But it's certainly in art, he was, in official art, he was, he was shown two different ways depending on what his role was.
1: All right, we're going to see this dichotomy show up throughout the rest of uh, Western history. But I think it's interesting, too, you point out, for those who have read the Old Testament and other ancient Near East texts, the act of forcibly shaving a man's beard off was like one of the worst things you could do. Why was that such a terrible offense? And why was it often used as a way to punish a man?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of famous scenes about that. David's ambassadors are described uh, uh, as being humiliated that way. Uh, by a king um, and the, I think that by that time by the time of the Old Testament the, the beard had become a, a symbol of, of masculine honor and patriarchal pride and to and and as a symbol of that it could be symbolically used against you you know it could be removed and, and then you're shamed publicly shamed and the David Ambassador's story he he's uh the, the ambassadors are so embarrassed, right, that they, they have to stay away from Jerusalem for several weeks while their beards grow again. <laughs> and only then are they, they can feel comfortable enough to actually return to their families, into their homes after this humiliation. So yes, it's a real thing because it has become so strongly connected with the honor of manhood itself.
1: Right. and And because of that connection to the honor of manhood, you'd often hear ancient people like swear by their beard.
0: Right medieval, too. That was re- reintroduced in medieval times by a lot of medieval kings as well, yeah.
1: Now, let's move on to ancient Greece. What role did the beard play amongst the Greeks?
0: Well, the Greeks start out by being like the Hebrews. I mean, they believe that beards are part of manly honor. Uh, they, too, have a patriarchal society, and the honor of the patriarch and his great beard is very important. And, and men who had inadequate beards or even kind of were effeminate and shaved them, were mocked and humiliated in public, but but something happened during classical times, and we're talking about the 5th century, you know, the time that we often think about, uh, when we think about ancient Athens, something was happening, and, and what was happening was that artists were thinking of how to represent the gods in a new way and and they came up with the idea of representing the immortal quality of the gods as youthful nude men uh, and women. The gods were youthful and nude, and the idea is in a sense to imitate something that they came up with in their funeral arrangements, they would erect these statues, they started putting up these statues to important men who died, and these statues were nude, youthful figures, and the idea was to represent immortality, right, that in a sense, when think about the human life cycle and when are we most alive, most fully alive, uh, mature, but not old, that's what I want to say. Where's that point in life when we're mature but never, not old, not decayed? <laughs> and, and, that, and they decided that that would be like 18, 19 years old, you know, when you're mature but you're not at all old or decayed. And, and that's like the peak of life. And so they like to represent that. No matter how old you were, if you were a 75-year-old man and you died, you'd get a statue that looks like you're 19. They did that in art more and more. And then, by uh, when Alexander the Great sort of took over Greece, this is in the 300s BC, he took over Greece and then conquered the Persian Empire and established Greece as the kind of a, the dominant culture of the whole area. He started to make himself look like the art, because so, he thought of himself as a demigod, and so he wanted to look immortal. And so, he, luckily, he was young. He was very young, but he, he shaved his beard, unlike his father and unlike the other Greeks at the time, uh, to to look like a like a god. And and then everyone thought, oh yeah, that's a great look. <laughs> and and then you know the Greeks, the Hellenistic era, the, the Greeks after that, all the respectable men shaved. And then barbers, the whole profession of barbering, took off. And, and then the Romans picked it up later when they adopted Greek ways. And so that's, that answers my question that I had originally, is why did the Romans shave? Well, they shaved because the Greeks shaved. Why did the Greeks shave? They shaved because Alexander the Great wanted to look like a god.
1: <laughs> and so it all goes back to that dichotomy of facial hair being sort of earthy, natural man, no facial hair being divine.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and there's your divide again. It's similar to what was going on earlier, where the shaving offers you a, to represents a different kind of masculinity that's beyond the natural. You know, it's refined, it's it's special, it's extraordinary.
1: You know, it's interesting, that dichotomy. I think whenever the people depicted Achilles, he was often without a beard later.
0: Right, later. Earlier he had a beard in art, and then later he didn't, yeah.
1: But the exception with the gods of no facial hair, Zeus was often portrayed with the beard still,
0: right? Right, yeah. Zeus is probably the only guy... Who, who kept his beard throughout. I mean, it just, even, <laughs> even, even the Greeks couldn't imagine Zeus without a beard. Uh, but uh, the funny one that I, I like to think about is, is Heracles or Hercules. Now, here's the He-Man of ancient Greece, the ultimate He-Man. And he was a demigod, by the way. He, he was half-God, half-human. So, you know, it, it was fun to watch him transition in art because here's the ultimate He-Man. And so, he keeps his beard a lot longer than the other gods like Ach- or demigods like Achilles. But even he loses his beard by Alexander's time. Even Hercules, the he-man of ancient Greece, is beardless.
1: <laughs> beardless, all right. Continuing on with the Romans, you see a lot of the bust of the ancient Romans. Most of the emperors clean-shaven. But then there was Hadrian, and he decided, I'm going to start growing a beard. So why did he start growing a beard? What was going on there?
0: Yeah, that's what I call the first beard movement. So we have 400 years of shaving, where shaving is expected by men of power. And then after 400 years, Hadrian changes his mind and changes everyone else's mind as well and starts a movement towards beards. And he's inspired by the philosophers, uh, particularly the Stoics. And the idea here is the Stoics believe that wisdom is following the laws of nature, Universal laws of nature. Their argument is: nature gave man a beard, and gave man a beard for a purpose, and that purpose was to show what a man—that a man is a man and not a woman. And if you shave off your beard, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to become a woman? What is that? You know. And Hadrian was one of these Roman generals and an emperor who loved Greek learning and really took philosophy very seriously and studied personally with some of the top philosophers. No doubt he, he he had these lectures, you know, heard these lectures, and about beards, and said, you know what? That's right. You know, I'm a, I'm a man of wisdom. I'm going to follow the universal laws of nature, and I want to model that for the rest of my society. And so he proudly returns to Rome from Greece, you know, with a beard, and then when he becomes emperor, that that's it. You know that
1: sets the tone. Yeah, you start seeing uh, Emperor, like Marcus Aurelius had a beard and he was also a Stoic right. Stoic philosopher. Let's talk about one of the most famous bearded men in history who was around the time of Romans. It's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Today, you know, Jesus is portrayed as having a beard all the time. That's what we, we think when we think Jesus. But you you show that that wasn't always the case during the history of Christianity. So can you talk about the beardiness and non-beardiness of Jesus throughout the early days of Christianity?
0: Well, what was we sometimes Forget is that the early Christians lived in the Roman Empire in the period that w- we were just talking about. And for a lot of that time, well, I'll have to say that here's, here's what I've got to start with. After Hadrian's time, shaving comes back in the late Roman Empire. And shaving comes back because there's a sort of a revival of the old style as they try to keep their empire together. And the old style, you know, Caesar and Augustus and so forth. Um, and so shaving is back, if you will. In that time when Christianity is really taking off in the Roman world, and these, so, so the early Christians are Romans, they might be Greek-speaking, but they're Roman citizens, and, and their imagery, you know, when they create art, and when they imagine Jesus as the Savior, they connect him quite naturally with images that they have in their classical culture. Images of Hermes, the shepherd god, so Jesus is the shepherd. A good shepherd, so they think of Hermes, and Hermes is this, always represented as this young, beardless man, you know? or they think of him as Apollo, you know, the god of wisdom, and uh, or, or so forth, and so they have all these images of these youthful, beardless, you know, immortals, and, and for hundreds of years, they presented Jesus in, in art that way, because that's the visual imagery that they had. It wasn't until really after the fall of the Roman Empire and the fading away of these old classical ideas and images that Jesus then is reimagined as, as a bearded man. And it's true that Jesus was almost certainly bearded in real life, but that isn't why we depict him as bearded. We, we depict him as bearded because we developed a, a kind of artistic iconography by the way, Jesus always has long hair. Did you ever wonder about that? Why does Jesus always have this long, flowing hair you know as well as that beard, which is and that that was just part of the the iconography uh, of how his image was developed in the early middle ages. It's a holdover by the way. It's a holdover from classical times when long, flowing hair was considered to be, you know, part of your youthful vitality.
1: That's interesting. And you also point out in these early depictions, you know, later on, when they're transition from that classical youthful notion of Jesus, divine Jesus, to, you know, the bearded Jesus, there was, there'd be artwork where there would be a bearded Jesus and a non-bearded Jesus portrayed in the same scene.
0: As this iconography is morphing and people are experimenting, you know, what, what could, how could we do this, you know? What... And so there was actually a period there where they were, had both going at the same time, and even an artist would be using both. So they would typically use the beardless Jesus as the Jesus that, you know, was on earth and traveling around and teaching and gathering disciples and performing miracles. And then use the bearded Jesus to represent the, that special last time of his life, you know, the entry into Jerusalem, the passion, the death, and the resurrection, there really is two Jesuses when you think about it. There's, you know, the, the Jesus, the teacher, the miracle worker, and then there's the Jesus of the passion and the resurrection. And they would sometimes say, well, we could, we could kind of think of him as looking different for those different times. And, and that got me thinking that what, what, they, what artists were really going for is they were creating contrast. So when Jesus is on earth among ordinary bearded men, he's beardless to represent how different he is. He's the divine figure on earth. He's like an angel who has descended from heaven among men. But when he's ready to enter heaven, (laughs) when he goes through his passion and, and becomes, you know, God and not man, and sends to heaven, now he's in heaven and surrounded by beardless angels and spirits. And here he's now depicted more typically as having a beard. And I think that's, again, the contrast, so that we're reminded that although he's in heaven and he's God, he's also a man, and he has a beard. He's not an angel. He's not a a spirit in that sense. He still retains his manhood uh, with him, even as he sits on the throne of heaven, you know, so. I think that's what they were playing with, with their imagery, and that image of the bearded Jesus in heaven became kind of the standard look.
1: We had this this first beard movement during the Roman era with Hadrian. Then the late emperor started shaving again to kind of reclaim that sort of classical notion. What happened after the fall of the Roman Empire and as we entered into the Middle Ages? Did the, the clean-shaven look continue?
0: Well, it, it did. There was a bit of a breakdown, as you imagine, in, in, in culture and civilization. Uh, what what the, uh, the church... The church, you know, was mostly Roman and Latin speaking. The church leaders tried to limit the growth of hair. They, they, they really enforced short hair, you know, short cropped hair, because the, the new German barbarians that had taken over all around Western Europe oh, were notoriously long-haired and long-bearded. And we do have a kind of a bearded era here, um, but the church is resisting um, especially in Western Europe, because of the you know the, they want to contrast themselves with with uh, uh, with the hairy Germans, and that eventually develops into a full-blown you know anti-hair attitude, and and that contrast that they start to establish right away in the 500s expands. So by the 700s, they're starting to shave the top of their head. That, that's what we call the tonsure, where they make a bald spot on the top of their head. They started that in the 700s. And then the monks started shaving their faces as well as shaving the top of their heads. And then that eventually was adopted by the priesthood as a whole. And by the 10th by the, the 10th and 11th centuries, so you're getting into more in the middle of the Middle Ages, you have a really strong contrast between uh, clergy and laity. So the clergy are shaving the top of their heads, shaving their faces... And, but the aristocracy has sort of maintained this Germanic tradition of beards and hair. And so you have a real striking contrast between two types of masculinity. And what we've done is we've recreated what happened in the ancient period that I described earlier, where the priesthood was shaved, the, the, you know, the king's... Warriors were hairy. And then, there we are again. We're back to it in the Middle Ages. And in fact, so much so that the church built it into canon law. That is to say, by, by the, ten, uh, the 11th century, it was part of canon law. You could actually, if you were a priest and you refused to shave your face, you would be excommunicated, thrown out of the church. So, they were pretty serious about it. <laughs>
1: But what was funny, you point this out too, is you had the kings, the aristocracy, held on to their beards, for sort of their pagan beards, right? And then the priests shaving. But the kings would often make fun of the priests, just sort of like, you guys are womanly because you don't have a beard. And so the priests developed this idea of the inner beard. It's like, hey, we're still manly. We have a beard on the inside that you can't see.
0: Right. Well, there was this great, it was the great ideological confrontation of the Middle Ages, was the conflict of the what was called the two swords. You know, the two kinds of power, divine power and worldly power the, the sword of faith, the sword of the you know of the flesh, and that was the great conflict of the entire middle ages and 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 the popes and and bishops battled with kings for authority and predominance, so it was a back and forth thing uh, and uh you know both sides would accuse the other of being inadequate you know. <laughs> Yeah, the church would say your beards are representative of your worldliness and of your sin, uh, and you know, uh, so they could throw it back at them. Uh, yeah, so they were very proud of their quote inner beard, where, where they're growing a manhood of faith and discernment and purity, whereas you know, the worldly men are lost in. Right.
1: I don't know if you ever saw Dexter's Laboratory. It was a cartoon. There was a scene where uh, Dexter was trying to, he's a kid, he wants to grow a beard, so he puts on a fake beard, and this beard, big bearded guy tells him, it's not the beard on the outside that counts, it's the beard on the inside that counts. Uh, I didn't know that, that's great. <laughs> when, I, when I read that a bit about the inner beard, it reminded me of Dexter's Laboratory. We did the Middle Ages, pretty much a battle between beardiness and non beardedness but primarily clean-shaven because of the predominance of the priesthood and the church during that era but during the renaissance there was another beard movement so what was going on there why did people embrace the beard
0: yeah and i'll just have to do a preamble to that and that's what that it, shaving it, the, the, the beard felt falls away in the 13 and 1400s because the uh, the, the, the churchly standard of shaving becomes adopted by the laity as well. So we have the triumph of shaving for at least 150 years there. And that sets us up for another beard movement then uh, in the 1500s, in the height of the Renaissance. And this is a deliberate reaction against uh, the past. That's what the Renaissance was. I mean, they invented that word. They said, we're living in a different time. We're going to rebirth. That is to say, we're going to recreate or renovate our society it's, we are too stuck in medieval, unworldliness. Uh, we're too down on humanity. The, the, the humanists of the Renaissance were more optimistic and, and enthusiastic about human potential, and they were ready to throw off the, both the spiritual and the actual uh, real power of the Church, um, new class of worldly merchants, particularly in Italy, uh, were ready to do this. And and part of that was reinvention of, of a new worldly masculinity, uh, embracing positively our humanity, our natural humanity, and rejecting the unworldliness of the church. And, and part of that was, let's brace beards. And, and so... It's it's kind of similar to what Hadrian had done, you know, with, with the old philosopher, uh, uh, the Stoic philosophy, is let's embrace nature, let's not reject nature. After all, medieval was about how corrupt nature is, uh, but the Renaissance is, you know, there's beauty in nature and human nature is good, so they're embracing that.
1: Yeah, it's so so funny that this pendulum that keeps going back and forth. Yeah, and then into the Enlightenment, shaving comes back again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's, it, each time needs a different form of masculinity, and and you know, uh, the liberation of the Renaissance is all good and well, but for other reasons, not because, not because of liberation as such, but uh, you know, the late Renaissance era, we call it the age of that was also the Reformation and the age of religious wars. It became a very chaotic time in European history, disastrous time in many respects. The late 1500s, early 1600s were just terrible in social, political terms. And so there was, in a sense, too much freedom, (laughs) too much disorder, And, and so royal courts became the center of the effort to restore order, and that means social as well as political order. And that meant a new kind of masculinity that needs to be more disciplined, more regulated, more cooperative, more peaceful. And um, part of that was this elaborate court ritual that was developed. right? Uh, fancy clothes, fancy stockings, fancy wigs, and of course the eradication of all natural hair. You know? <laughs> You know, the, you, when you wore those big wigs that you see in the late 1600s, 1700s, when you wore those wigs, you shaved your head completely. You know, you got to get rid of all your hair, and then, uh, and then you put on this massive wig, and then you shave off your your your, your natural hair so that it's all controlled and very very perfect. Uh, not, not unruly nature. <laughs> it's a war against nature, you know. You know, so Renaissance, you say, let's liberate their nature. And then you're saying, ooh, too much nature, so let's control it, you know. And so we're going into a reaction again.
1: right, we had the reaction against that. But then, so we had the first beard movement with Hadrian, then the second beard movement during the Renaissance, and then the Enlightenment is like... Well, you could
0: call that the third because we had beards
1: in the medieval times. Medieval times, right. But then there was another beard movement during the Romantic era, which was a reaction against the Enlightenment era. So I guess the Romantics were embracing nature once again, and so that's why you got to grow a beard?
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think so. And Romanticism and the beard were, were were accepted by the extreme romantics the, the poets or the or the the the, the liberal e students or you know the the people that were most animated by this uh, this exciting idea of liberal romantic ideas that were percolating after the revolutionary era of the end of the 18th century and but but it never took off it never became a movement as such because the authorities, the middle classes, the air, and the monarchies and so forth that existed were were afraid. Uh, were afraid of romanticism and afraid of liberal ideas. So they repressed it, and it was socially unacceptable. Uh, so you had young people, kind of like the '60s. You had young people, you know, espousing this radical new romantic poetry and dreaming about liberation and growing beards. And the older, more you know, powerful. Generation are saying, "Oh, this is this is way too dangerous. We don't like this. Beards are radical." If you watch Les Misérables, you know, or you read Les Misérables, you'll see, you know, the young men. There is discussion about the young men wearing beards and how awful it is. And then, and then, uh, but what happens is that there are a bunch of liberal revolutions led by r- romantic bearded young men in 1848 or throughout Europe, France, Germany, Italy. But all those revolutions, uh, if you can imagine, like the 1960s youth, actually tried to overthrow the government. You know, <laughs> it collapsed because they were disorganized and 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 didn't have any leaders. So all, the, the, all that kind of enthusiastic political romanticism got kind of crushed in 1849, 1848, 49, and so in the heap of wreckage of of uh, romantic dreams, the the radical beard is dead, and it was now available for all men, you know. It was no longer a threat. So then more and more men experimented with mustaches and maybe longer sideburns, and then without out a beard, yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, in 1850s, boom, the big fourth beard movement arrives. Men embrace the idea that of, of beards again. It's, it's the fastest, most immediate, most sudden beard movement ever because I think men had been eager to grow beards for a long, long time. And you see the, the mutton chops, the whiskers, the burn sides going down, 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 down the side of the face, but they can't dare actually let it grow into a beard because then that would be radical, right? So there's all this pent-up desire of men in the 19th century to grow their facial hair. And then finally, when... when it, safe in 1850s all of a sudden boom everybody it's it's just like overnight and, and i love this you know i show a cartoon It shows a woman at a train station and she's these porters are coming to take her bags and they're all big bearded guys and she's just scared to death because what hell you know she thought she's being attacked by thieves you know robbers and you know she, there's a sense that Almost shock that all of a sudden everyone's growing beards. <laughs> it's really hilarious.
1: Right? Yeah, we get some of our like the most famous beards. Uh, you know, that we that are very iconic from that period. Like, I mean, Abraham Lincoln.
0: Right. Right. But this is a decade later. He's a he's a late adopter. what I say? He's a late adopter. He's a right. late adopter, and he's he's very cautious. He's a he's first of all he's a lawyer and he's a politician, and these guys have to be very cautious about their public image. You know, and people say, you know, hey, you know, kind of join the beard movement, Abe. You know, and he said, oh, well, that would be kind of a little over the top, don't you think? You know, he's very shy, and, <laughs> and then you know, this little girl writes a letter to him during the during the campaign, and mind you, he's not campaigning. Presidents didn't campaign in those days; he stayed at home. But letters come to him, and letter comes from a girl, and, and, they, and they, she says, "I saw your picture, your campaign picture." And we all agree that you're—you would look so much better with a beard. You have such a thin face. And uh, and you know, he 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 ponders this, and he says, "Well, I think it would be affectation if I grew a beard now." And and that's what he says to her. And then, but, but he does, in fact, grow his beard right then and there while he's sitting home and while the election's going on, so that when. Finally, when he emerges after the election and takes the train to Washington, he's a bearded man. And uh, he stops in northern New York where that girl lived and asks for her by name to come up to him. She came to see him, and he said to her, you know, look, I followed your advice.
1: (laughs) There you go. The rest was history. So we've been talking about beards, but what of the mustache? It's like not a full beard. Um, so it's kind of like uh, it's a compromise. Is there any cultural significance of the mustache throughout Western history?
0: Yeah. Well, the mustache has a long, long history with aristocracy and therefore the military. I think the most convenient thing, the most important thing that developed was in, the, in, the, in that romantic era that I talked about, in the Napoleonic Wars at the very beginning of the 19th century. Napoleon's army and the other armies, like the Prussians and the British, that that were fighting in the Napoleonic Wars, the Austrians certainly adopted um, a style which they thought was pretty awesome. It was called. It it was it was modeled on the look of the uh, the Hungarian Hussars. These are Hungarian cavalrymen who were part of the Austrian army. Ultimately, they had this awesome look that comes from their history. Uh, uh, they had these big bearskin caps. Uh, they had these leopard pelt saddles. They had ribbons and embroidery. They were colorful. They were dramatic. They had a, a curved saber sword. They had, and then they had this big black mustache. And the whole look was just awesome. It was original shock and awe. You know? and these cavalrymen would come charging at you, and you just, like, run, you know, just the sight of them. That was the idea. Then the European armies adopted this because it was so awesome, and this is because of the Napoleonic War. So by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, by 1815, you know all the European cavalrymen are looking like that, and they the, the army is regulating, and uh, drawing up new costume regulations or uniform regulations to adopt to this. And then more units want to do it. You know, they say, "Wow, this is this is fantastic. We want to look good too." <laughs> and so it spreads to the other officer corps you know and by the middle of the 19th century um, now all, all military units are excited about this and, and more and more units are permitted and by the middle of the 19th century it's actually become regulation in most European armies that all all officers and even all enlisted men have to have a mustache as you know part of their military look and it's a regulation you must have a mustache and, in fact, a lot of young men, imagine an 18-year-old recruit who's got, you know, not very thick hair, maybe even blonde, and they can't grow much of a mustache. They had to have a regulation black mustache. So if you had a blonde mustache, you had to color it. If you didn't have a mustache, you had to put something on, get a fake one, because it was regulation. It was your costume. And, and there's all these complaints in newspapers, like, oh, yeah, we're not paid enough to get our good quality fake mustaches. <laughs> and there's, there's some fun stories about that. And then that, that remains true all the way up to World War One, The French, the British, the Germans, the Austrians, they all required their soldiers to wear a mustache. And I have the best accounts from the British Army because the, the British were complaining, the British recruits were complaining, complaining that they didn't want to have to wear a mustache. You know, It was inconvenient to maintain it, to, to trim it, and so forth. And and now uh, what happened was that during the, middle, during the First World War, the British had to go to the draft in uh, 1916. And when they instituted the draft, they realized they had a morale problem because a lot of the young recruits didn't have mustaches and didn't want to grow them. And it wasn't fashionable at the time. It wasn't their image. They didn't like it. And and so the, the Army, was they actually had a court-martial. They started, they started court-martialing men for not having mustaches. And, and, then, and then the, the higher off, the officials started to rethink this, to think, is this really worth our time to court-martial men for not having mustaches when we're asking them basically to be cannon fodder on the Western Front? And so they, they re-examined, reevaluated, and rescinded the order. Uh, right in the middle of the war, because, you know, court-martialing was not worthwhile. It coincides with the use of uh, gas masks, and so we, we tend to think that it's gas masks that made, you know, the shaving, made mustaches go away. That's not true. You can fit a gas mask around a short mustache anyway. It was more an issue of morale.
1: Right. So, yeah, this begins the 20th century, the movement away from beards, from facial hair, and we entered like, this age of clean-shavenness that we still see today.
0: Yeah, well, there are a bunch of reasons that kind of conspire a perfect storm at the beginning of the 20th century to, to make this happen. We're already moving away from beards. The younger generation wants a slicker look. And and mustaches are actually really the look for a lot of the late uh, 1880s, 1890s. And by the turn of the century, though, as my story about World War I tells you, mustaches were going out of favor. And there's a perfect storm. One of the factors is is the new interest in in cleanliness. Uh, It was now understood that disease was caused by microbes, little bugs, you know. And these little microbes, and they they just figured out actually you know live in hair, and they did you know they could use the microscope for the first time. They look at hair, and oh my God, there's all these microbes on it, you know. And and now hair is scientifically dirty, you know, diseased. And so hair removing hair is, is tantamount to cleanliness. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is that this is the age of bodybuilding. Guys like Eugene Sandow are coming along and and and, and introducing this idea of muscle building and bodybuilding, and that becomes a new way to display masculinity, youth, toughness, and vitality. And Eugene Sandow is one of those. He he realizes right away, you know, if you if you shave your body, you know, you shave your chest and back and so forth, your musculature comes out more cleanly. And and so it's muscles versus hair here. And if you're going for the muscles, you're going to try to remove the hair. And although Sandow had a short mustache like an aristocratic man of his day, eventually, you know, the idea of the clean-shaven, smooth, muscular, athletic look is, is taking over. And the third thing is that we're entering the age of corporate employment, and corporations want their employees to represent the company well and look professional and orderly and disciplined, and so we're having a, a kind of new regulation society that's not unlike what I talked about with the courts back in the 17th and 18th centuries, where we want discipline as our primary discipline and reliability, as well as cleanliness, as, as, the, as our primary attributes of a, of a good man, of a good employee, and companies started to enforce Shading regulations even banned not only beards but mustaches as well. Even from the police forces, you know, police have this military tradition of loving to look like, you know, Olympic military. They have a, and even today you'll see that, right? And police love to have a mustache because it kind of has a military look to it. But a lot of police forces back in the early 20th century were telling their men, get rid of those
1: mustaches. We're still in that today. But you're, you are seeing sort of a resurgence of the beard. What's the status of the beard today? Does it have any larger cultural significance like it did in times past? Or is it sort of like any other postmodern idea where the meaning of the beard you know depends on the person or the group?
0: Yeah, The thing about today is that we live in a very... Um, culturally fluid time. I, what what I've been describing all this time is, is is patterns that are established by elites and dominant political groups and, and they establish a form for themselves and then sort of impose it as the norm for everyone as much as they can. So we have a kind of a, more of a monolithic style and that's been true all the way up through until recent times and I think today we're seeing a more fluid cultural dynamic where there isn't one type that is enforced uh, on everyone. And, and there's there some good things about that, I guess. But as a historian or as a sociologist, it's very difficult to say <laughs> what's going on because you have all sorts of people following different drummers. So you have a, quite a tremendous variety of, of attitudes to facial hair. But I will say that there's a great deal more acceptance you know, in the last 20 years very much more. Even Walt Disney Company allows workers at its theme parks since 2012 to grow modest facial hair, which was strictly forbidden up till then. So that shows you that we are becoming much, much more tolerant of facial hair. And, and because we're more tolerant, I think we're going to have it. I mean, we're go- because men are always going to want at least the option. And so when people ask me, are, be- are beards... Here to stay? I'd say, yeah, I think they are here to stay because we've, we've reached a, a high level of tolerance. And, and I think that beards help men develop a style of look for themselves and establish themselves as men. And that, too, is increasingly difficult <laughs> in our society where uh, masculinity is more and more up for negotiation. Going back to our theme that we followed in this whole discussion. Because beards are associated with nature and with natural masculinity, it always is a resource there for men to use to make a stake, at least a basic claim, to uh, nature, their nature as men. And I think that's why it's going to stay.
1: Well, Christopher, this has been a great conversation. We really dug deep, but there's so much more in your book that people can find out more. Is there any place where people can
0: learn more about the book or your work? Well, I think the book is widely available now out in paperback, so that's good news. I have, you know, I've done a couple of things in the Wall Street Journal, and a, you, can, you can even find an interview with me on CBS Sunday Morning, and if you Google around, you'll find some uh, uh, smaller articles where I'd make some commentary about our present situation if they want to read.
1: Well, well, Christopher oldstone Morn, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Great. Thanks. It's been the same for me.
1: My guest today was Christopher Oldstone Moore. You can check out his book of Beards and Men on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash beards where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.